Here is speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your incredible love that you have for each one of us. We thank you for the prophecies that your word contains. We thank you how the ancient past reveals so much of what is happening in our world right now. We pray that you'll bless us as we study together. We pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray the presence of your angels to be here with us as we do so every night. We pray that you'll guide us in our study, draw us close to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening we're going to go back to Egypt again, but as we travel back to ancient Egypt, I want to begin by sharing a story that happened to my father. Now, my father lived in Africa for five years, and while he was there, one of the jobs that he worked on was to transport a D10 bulldozer, and for those of you who don't know what that is, that's like the biggest one they build, just about. Had to transport it from Johannesburg all the way up through Africa, up into Zambia, up through Lusaka, and then up north, of, uh, up north of Lusaka, up to a little place called Mpongwe, near the border with Zaire, otherwise known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, this bulldozer weighed about 90 tons. At one particular point, they came to a checkpoint where they had to stop, and from that particular point, the road went straight up the side of a mountain. And it went straight up for four kilometres. No curves, no, just straight up the side of the mountain. So they put it in, in granny low gear. And in granny low, all the way down there, they had a top speed of exactly half a kilometre an hour. It was the only way they could take off. And so here they were winding their way very, very slowly up the hill, dragging 90 tonnes of bulldozer behind them. They got about halfway up. And the boss who was driving at the time said to Dad, he said, he said, um, she feels like she's pulling pretty hard. The temperature on the gearbox was just about going off the clock. He says, do you want to get out and have a look and see if any of the tyres have gone flat? And so Dad gets out and he wanders around and climbs all over it and looks here and looks there. And there's a lot of tyres on that trailer, as you can imagine. And uh, no, none of the tyres have got flat. He goes to get back in and he notices that the front left-hand wheel of the truck was about this far off the ground the massive torque of pulling it up there. You know, you see a truck take off in the lights and it'll sort of lift on one side. The torque had twisted the chassis around and she was grinding away up the hill. You know, you think about the logistics of moving large and heavy objects, even with the modern technology that we have today, and it's really quite astounding. But think for a moment about the pyramids, and we discussed this the other night, how that... The Great Pyramids of Giza were built within a 70-year period and that to accomplish that, the stones that the pyramid is made out of, which weigh between 2.5 to 15 tonnes each, were placed in position at a rate of one every two minutes. Now, that's a mystery that nobody has ever been able to understand. Well, let's travel from Egypt to another place, a little bit further north, to Baalbek. Look at this big piece of rock right there. 20 metres up in the air, weighing 60 tonnes. The corner piece that went the other direction originally weighed 100 tonnes. Now, a Roman crane at its limit could lift about 20 tonnes. And so once again, you ask the question, how did they get those big stones up there? 
Well, then you have the base of that temple, the Temple of Jupiter. This is in Lebanon, of course. And around the base, there is a retaining wall. At the bottom of that retaining wall, there are 24 big stones that weigh 300 tons each. And then you have the second course, which is made up of three large stones, each weighing 800 tons. A little bit further on, you have what they call the stone of the pregnant woman, which weighs 1,000 tons. And across from the road from that is the biggest of them all, that weighs 1,200 tons. How do you deal with that in a world that is rather primitive? It raises some unanswerable questions, doesn't it? I don't know the answers. There are lots of things in our world, particularly in the ancient world, that we don't have answers for. Let's go all the way around the world this time, and let's travel to another part of the world, and this is time in Peru, where you have hundreds of massive pieces of artwork spread out across the desert floor. Now, a few of these you can see from the ridges of nearby mountains, but the majority you can't see unless you fly. So they weren't actually discovered until modern times. Many of them have beautiful straight lines running enormous distances and amazing symmetry. You know, we could go on and on and on around the world looking at mysteries, but it is as a result of mysteries like this that many people have asked the question, are we alone in the universe? Some people have asked the question whether those big blocks of stone were moved by aliens or ancient astronauts, as some have put forward. Well, I don't believe that we need to have aliens and ancient astronauts to accomplish all of the things that we have in our world today. However, I do not believe that we are alone in the universe. We just sent the, uh, the Curiosity rover out to Mars, didn't we? Send it out to Mars, and one of the things that it is programmed to do is to search and to discover for evidences of life on Mars. As human beings, we are fascinated with what might be out there. Is there life on other planets? Well, tonight we're going to find the answer to that question. We're going to find the Bible says absolutely there is other life out there, and we're going to look at it in a little bit more detail. And understanding the life that is out there is fundamental to answering our question of good God, bad world, why? I'm going to begin this section with a number of propositions. And here they come. Proposition number one is this, that God is love. Now, if you take the major religions of the world, if you take Christianity, if you take Islam, you take Buddhism, you take Judaism, you go on down through the list, we find that All major religions of the world almost believe in this proposition right here that God is love. At the very least, there are 4 billion people in our world today who would say, yes, God is love. Those same 4 billion people would continue on and agree with this one, that God, because he's love, he can't stand evil. You can't be love and like evil at the same time. Naturally follows on. All right, those same four billion people would naturally conclude that if God is love, he doesn't like evil, then he would want to eradicate anything that is the opposite of what he sees as being the best in the universe. That simply makes sense, doesn't it? Okay? 
And we will finish off with one last proposition, and that is that God is all-powerful. If God is not all-powerful, then he is not God. Now, with these particular propositions that we have right here, I want to challenge you all because I think that, generally speaking, we would agree with these propositions. Isn't that so? All right, let me challenge you then. You see, in our world today, there are some truly horrific things that take place. And if God is powerful, and God is love, and God wants to get rid of really horrific and evil things, the question is, why doesn't he? Let me give you a couple of examples. I'll give you some extreme examples just so that we can sort of begin to get our heads around the problem of this question. You see, if you don't have an answer to this question, you'd have no reason for spirituality of any form whatsoever at all. So, let me give you an example that comes from Africa, not far from an area that my father used to travel to on regular occasions. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, or Zaire as it was called then. In this particular part of the world, they've invented a new form of warfare. And it is called sexual warfare. They found that rape is cheaper than bullets. It demoralizes the population, takes away their will to fight back, and kills them all through sexually transmitted diseases. The horrific thing is that it's primarily being carried on by children, child soldiers. You see, the things that they ask these child soldiers to do, the average adult would refuse to do. But as we know, children are like wet clay and are programmable, and they can change these children and program them into killing machines that, in a way, is much easier to do than adults. So how do you do that? This is the process that you go through. You'll round up all the people in the village, you'll separate out the boys that you want to train as child soldiers, and then you'll kill their father in front of them, hack him to pieces with a machete. This is what happens right now. This is what's happening. Then you gang rape his mother and his sisters in front of him before killing them. Then you take him out to a training camp, pack him full of drugs, put him nonstop in front of hardcore pornography for the next 10, 12 days, thereabouts, often force them to kill somebody else, a prisoner that you have, that kind of thing. And what you end up doing is creating a group of children where their mind has been turned to emotional mush. It's a level of abuse beyond what we can imagine and it completely removes from their from their person, any sense of morality or right or wrong whatsoever. And from that point forward, the only way that they find pleasure is in in inflicting pain. And you can then send them out in packs, as they do, out into the villages to complete the cycle, to continue the cycle In in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo right now. There are are over 30,000 child soldiers who have been trained this way. At least two-thirds of the population have been raped. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Now, let me ask you all a question right here, right now. If you had the power, if you were looking at that taking place and you had the power to stop it, what would you do? You'd stop it right there, wouldn't you? So why doesn't God? 
It's a relevant question. Let's think about these children for a moment. Did these children, did they ask to be born at all? No. Did they ask to be born in Africa, in the, in the, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Do they deserve what happened to them? So why doesn't God intervene? Well, let's bring it a little bit closer to home then. When was the last time, don't answer this question, but when was the last time that you saw a close friend or a relative suffering in hospital and you stood beside your, their bed and you wished that you could do something? Maybe it was a child. Did they deserve what happened to them? Born that way. Is that justice? And if you had the power, you would end it right there. So let me ask you a question. You say that God is love. And you say that God is all-powerful. We all agreed on that, didn't we? You start to see the problem we have? And this is where the majority of people today, when it comes to religion, it doesn't really matter which religion you have because any religion you have pretty much has the same problem. They will say religion is the greatest fraud that this world has ever seen because of this situation right here. And so many times people have come up to this and they've asked questions and I have to tell you I've been absolutely horrified and embarrassed and hung my head in shame when Christians have uh, and people of other religions have endeavoured to answer this question because the answers they have given have actually made God look worse than the problem is in the first place. You see, if we don't have an, a reasonable, logical answer for this question right here, we have no reason for our spirituality at all. And so many people conclude as a result of this, if God is all-powerful, number one, well, he mustn't know about what's happening here on this earth. Well, if he doesn't know what's happening here on this earth, he's not all-powerful and he's not God. Second conclusion people come to is that God is, if God is all-powerful, and he is loved then, he can't stop it. Well, that contradicts the proposition to begin with, doesn't it? If he can't stop it, then why should we serve him? The third conclusion that people come to is that he doesn't want to stop it. Now, if God doesn't want to stop it, and we do, that means then that we are more loving and more righteous than God. That's a scary thought. Because we look at ourselves and some of the issues that we have in ourselves and some of the ways that we treat other people on occasions... It would be a scary thing if we were more righteous than God. And so as a result of not being able to answer these questions right here in a reasonable and a logical way, many people simply conclude God doesn't exist. And you can understand why if you don't have the answer to this particular question right here. All right, we need to dig a little bit deeper into our Bibles and find out what does the Bible actually have to say? We're going to look at a number of principles in answering this question this evening. And the first principle that we're going to look at is what I call small picture, big picture. We see a small picture, God sees a big picture. We're going to look at the small picture that we see and we're also going to look at the big picture that God sees. And one of the places in the Bible where God peels back the curtain, so to speak, and reveals the big picture is found in the book of Job. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Job. You'll find that on page 207, the book of Job. Job chapter 1 
and we're going to find out what's going on right here. Job chapter 1. It begins like this. In verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz. That's page 207. Whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright. One that feared God and eschewed evil. I like that word. It means he turned away from evil. But we're going to move down a little bit further. So we know that we've got Job here and he's a righteous man. In verse 6, the Bible says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also amongst them. Okay, now what we see is the curtain is being peeled back and we have a view of something that is taking place in heaven. The gathering together of the sons of God and Satan turning up amongst them. Well, what is going on right here and what is it that Satan is trying to accomplish? In verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now that's interesting. I find that fascinating. Before we go any further as we consider this particular thought, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Bible talking about when it talks about the sons of God? What particular gathering do we have that is taking place right here where Satan or Lucifer turns up and tries to pass himself off as having a right to be there? Now, when it comes to a discussion of the sons of God, we have a number of different options. So let's work through our options to begin with. Number one, we have Jesus who is the Son of God. We know that we are not dealing with Jesus in this particular passage right here because the Bible says the sons of God, plural. There is a difference between the sons of God and the Son of God. All right? We have another option in the Bible, and that one we'll find if we go over to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, Now are we the sons of God? Well, who's that? That's the redeemed. That's those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. So the second one we can put up there is the redeemed. Now we know that it's not the redeemed because this is taking place in heaven and the redeemed aren't there yet. All right, so we go on to our next option, which we find in the book of Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and this one is the most interesting out of them all. That's page 416. Luke chapter 3, page 416. 16. And here the Bible says in verse 38, it gives the genealogy of Jesus. It works its way all the way back through the genealogy until you get to verse 38 where the Bible says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Why does the Bible say that Adam is the son of God? Well, it doesn't really have any other options, does he? You see, Adam was the personal creation of God. He did not have a father other than God who formed him out of the dust of the ground. So it goes back and you can read back, you know, this person um, gave birth to this person, gave birth, you know, you can work your way all the way back through until you come to Adam and the only option when you have to Adam as to who Adam's father is, is that Adam's father is God. So how is Adam the son of God? Adam Adam is the son of God by creation. We become sons and daughters of God by redemption. But Adam is in a different category altogether. 
So we have a gathering of the sons of God in heaven and Satan coming amongst them. Now, if this was a gathering that Adam should have been at, who were the other sons of God? Let's look a little bit further into our Bibles. And and, and while we're turning there, I want to challenge you all with something for a moment. In our universe, from what we know, we don't know a whole lot, there are at the very least 125 billion galaxies. Recently they pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at a portion of the sky that was entirely empty from our land-based telescopes. There was nothing in it. They wanted to see, is there anything in that empty spot? They pointed the Hubble Space Telescope there, they took a photo, and what came back was a solid mass, not of stars, of galaxies stretching out into the distance as far as the eye could see, or as far as the Hubble Space Telescope could see. There's at least 125 billion of them. Our Milky Way, which is one of the smaller ones, has over 200 billion stars in it. Imagine what the potential is there for other planets and other worlds just in our galaxy. So there's a thought. Here's another thought to go along with it. What do we know about God? What is the very first thing that the Bible reveals to us about God? The first thing the Bible reveals to us about God is that God is a creative being. Isn't that so? That's where it starts. The second thing that the Bible reveals to us about God is that God created us as human beings in his image. Therefore, we are created as creative beings and every single one of us finds pleasure in creating things. Isn't that so? Some people create things artistically. Some people create things technically. But we all find fulfillment in making something. So we know that God is creative. The third thing that we find about God is that God created us for the purpose of friendship. God is sociable. That was his purpose in creating human beings. That's his purpose in creating you as an individual. So if God is creative by nature and God is sociable, does it make sense that would God would create this vast universe as an empty uninhabited desert, devoid of life, does that line up with what we know about God? No, it doesn't really, does it? So let's see what the Bible says. Let's turn our Bibles to Psalms chapter 19. We'll go to Psalms 19 first. Uh, first that's uh, Psalms spelt with a P and it's in the middle of the Bible. And I want to establish a principle right here. Psalms chapter 19. Psalms chapter 19. And we're going, that's page 225. We'll start in verse 1. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And so here we have the Bible describing the universe, the starry heavens. When the Bible speaks about the starry heavens in the plural, it is a word that describes the universe. The Bible says that the universe declares the glory of God. All right, so let's look at the heavens in the plural then. The universe. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3 and we'll start reading in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 3, page 472. 
We'll start reading in verse 8. The Bible says, Paul is speaking, he says unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this great given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers, that's Old English, for governments, plural. So what's this? To the intent that now, unto the governments in heavenly places, that's plural as well, in other words, the governments in the universe might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So Paul speaks about the governments in the universe. Well, that's interesting. Let's go to another passage. And there's quite a few that we could look at, but I'll just do with enough this evening so we can get an idea of what we're dealing with. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And here, this is page 461. We will read verse 9. And once again, Paul says this. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle. And now I want you to notice, he works up through a hierarchy. He starts at the bottom and he works up in ascending order. All right, so we are a spectacle under who? Number one, the world. So that's going to include the people living here on this earth. Isn't that so? The world, next in line, and to angels and to what? Men. Well, whereabouts are those men? We know they're not here on this world because... It wouldn't make sense if he wrote, if he wrote, we are made a spectacle unto men and to angels and to men. He's working his way up. These are other beings inhabiting the rest of the universe. In fact, if you go over to Hebrews, the Bible says very plainly that Jesus is the creator of the world's plural. Hebrews chapter 1, page 482, and verse 2, where it says, Jesus has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he created the worlds. And so when we think of the universe that God has created, this vast universe stretching out beyond our imagination and we consider our planet amongst the 200 billion suns in our Milky Way, did God create it as one vast, great, uninhabited, lifeless desert? No, not at all. But our planet is slightly unique in that our planet has accepted Satan. In fact, if we go to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14, you might want to put a bookmark here because we're going to come back and read this in just a moment. The Bible talks about the fall of Lucifer, Satan. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, that's page 282. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground? That's to this earth. You who did, past tense, weaken the nations. So in other words, before he came to this earth, he was out there, the Bible says, weakening the nations. Well, before he came to this earth, there were no nations here on this earth. We know that the Bible is referring to the rest of the universe. You know, one day it's my plan to travel through the universe and visit some of these places. Don't you want to do that? 
Meet some of the other beings that God has created. We are not alone. The Bible is very clear. We are not here by ourselves. So let's then go back to our original uh, passage that we're looking at in Job chapter 1. And let's see what's going on here in Job chapter 1. The Bible says, There comes a time when there was a gathering together of the sons of God. Adam should have been there as one of the sons of God, as the representative, the head of the human race. But he's not there. Why is he not there? Because he chose Satan, gave his allegiance to Satan. As a result, he died. He can't go there. So what happens? Satan turns up, passing himself off as the representative of this planet. And so God's like, well, Satan, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I've come from planet Earth. I've been wandering up and down. That's my domain. I am the representative of planet Earth. You know, all these other sons of God, they represent their planets. I represent the planet Earth. And God is like, oh, really? You think you represent planet Earth? Have you, in verse 8, considered my servant Job? Do you represent him? There's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and eschews evil. Satan answered the Lord in verse 9 and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you made a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. And so Satan comes back with an accusation at this particular point. And Satan says, The only reason... That Job serves you is because you give him lots of things. Of course he's going to serve you. You're his sugar daddy. Now, God is in an interesting situation right here. The universe, the sons of God are looking on. God claims that his universe is a universe of love. That the allegiance of the universe is based around the concept of that universe loving him. He also claims that those who are faithful to him here on this earth are faithful to him because they love him. And Satan says, they're not faithful to you because they, because they love you. Look at Job. The only reason he's faithful to you is because you give him stuff. Now, at this particular point, there are a number of options that are open to God. But there's some implications that we need to consider. So let's work through our implications very quickly. We have Satan. He turns up claiming to rule this world. God disputes it, citing Job. Satan disputes Job's motives and his allegiance and said, no, he's only worshipping you because of the stuff you give him. If God has bought Job's allegiance, then love is a fraud. Isn't that so? And God has staked everything on the fact that his universe is a universe of love. His government is a government of love. And if love is proven to be a fraud at this particular point, notice the implications. The allegiance of the entire universe is at stake because God is revealed as being cheap and fake. But on the other hand, if Job has not been bought, he does serve from love, then God is love. And so here's where I want to illustrate the difference between the small picture and the big picture. You see, God is looking at a big picture. In this situation, the allegiance of the universe is at stake. If love is fake, then everything that God stands for will collapse and Satan will be justified and he wins. On the other hand, 
If love is proven to be true, then Satan ends up with egg all over his face. His claims are shown to be false. Isn't that so? So what does God do? Well, God at this particular point could do a number of things. He has two options. Number one, he could ignore Satan and say, go away. God is all-powerful. He can do that anytime he wants. If he did that, it would be an admission through actions that Satan was right. On the other hand, he can allow Satan to test Job. Does God want to do that? No way. He loves Job. He allows Satan to test Job. Satan comes down to this earth. Satan, in one day, destroys all of Job's possessions. He was the wealthiest man on the earth at that time. Destroys all of his possessions. Wipes out his family. All bar his wife. He spares his wife alive because she happened to be a servant of his, as we find out. Um, And then he comes back and has a second go and covers him with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet so that he has lost everything. He is in pain and agony. He cannot go further and still keep Job alive. And Job remains faithful to God because Job loves God. What happens? Satan gets egg all over his face. Now, put yourself in Job's shoes for a moment. Does Job understand that the allegiance of hundreds of billions of galaxies is at stake right here? No, he only sees the little picture. What happened to him? But when God peels back the curtain, you start to see the big picture. Isn't that so? All right, so let's run through what we have here. The implications. If God ignores Satan and forces him away, what happens? God is Job's sugar daddy. Job is nothing but a gold digger. Satan is justified. The universe follows Satan. God has no service from love. And God loses the allegiance of the whole universe. Number two, on the other hand, allow Job to be tested. Job serves God from true love. Satan is exposed as a fraud Satan is exposed as the originator of pain because he's the one who came down here, took away all of Job's stuff and his family. The universe rejects Satan. God has service from love and he keeps, maintains the allegiance of the universe. See the difference between a small picture and the big picture. Okay, let me ask you all a question. How much of the picture do we see here today? Small picture or big picture? We see the small picture. Have you ever been in that situation where you have gone, God, why? I have. I think we all have at times. Isn't that so? We say that because we only see the small picture. Job said that. Why? He had no idea what was going on until God came to him at the end of the story and God actually explained to him what was happening. And Job saw a much bigger picture and it completely revolutionized his life. So there's the first principle that we need to look at in answering this question. The second one that we're going to look at is the principle of the power of choice. Let's consider this for a moment. Does love exist without the power of choice? 
No. Without the power of choice, love does not exist. Therefore, if God is love and he values that commodity, then he is going to create beings that have the power of choice. Isn't that so? Because if he doesn't, love does not exist. I have some people sometimes and they come to me and they say, you know, why, did God, why didn't God create us just so that it was impossible for us to ever do anything wrong? Now, God could have done that, couldn't he? He is all-powerful. If God had created us like that, we would not have the power of choice, would we? No. We would not have the power of choice. And if we did not have the power of choice, then we would be reduced to a robot. The difference between a robot and a person comes down to just one thing the power of choice. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Let's see if this works. I love you, Lyle. I think you are great. I like the way you dress and you have such a great tan. You are the best speaker. I enjoyed your presentation today. It was so clear. You are my hero. I wish I was like you. I I play this to myself every morning. (laughs) Okay, let me ask you a question. Does my computer love me? (laughs) It says it does, but does it? Why did my computer just tell tell me it loves me? Yeah, because I programmed it that way. There's no power of choice in that machine right there. It doesn't love me. Love does not exist without the power of choice. Now, if it had the power of choice, it would be a person, and that would be different. You see, love does not exist without the power of choice. Therefore, God created beings that have the power of choice. Now... Working from that thought there, God is love, therefore he wants us to be happy. He only wants us to serve him from love, no other reason. Our entire relationship with God must be built on the concept of love. Love does not exist without the power of choice, therefore God created us with the power of choice. And the moment that God created us with the power of choice, guess what else God created by default? The possibility of the opposite of love, and that is evil. And so the moment that God created beings that have the power of choice, he also had to have a plan as to what he would do if those beings chose to mess up. The Bible tells us the story. Let's go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 14. We were there a little while ago. And let's look at what happens over here in Isaiah chapter 14. You have Lucifer, the most powerful being that God ever created. That's page 282. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So here we have Lucifer in heaven, before the creation of this world, and he wants to pull off the first military takeover of the government of heaven. He wants to take God off his throne. He wants to sit there himself. Isn't that so? This is the origin of evil. This is where you have a being who began, the Bible says, a war in heaven. And as a result, he was thrown out of heaven. And so it happened that our first parents passed their allegiance to him and gained a foothold on this earth. Jesus came back that same day down to this earth and brought this world back by the virtue of the promise of giving his life for us. 
Satan starts his never. And sometimes people have come to him and they said, you know, why didn't, why didn't God, why didn't God just, you know, the moment that Satan had that first evil thought, why didn't God just destroy him right then and immunize the universe? Have you thought about the implications of that for a moment? You see, everything has implications. Let's think about what would happen if God had destroyed Satan and immunized the universe. Number one, at that particular point, the universe would move from serving God from love to serving him from fear. Up until that particular point, the whole universe, they serve God because they love him and suddenly, someone's disappeared. Well, I better not do whatever he did because I don't want to get destroyed as well. And it changes. In that one act, love would be entirely eradicated from the universe. It would cease to exist. That's pretty heavy implication, isn't it? So love would be eradicated. No one would ever trust God again. The universe would be eternally curious What was that guy thinking? What was going on inside of his head that God destroyed him? And when you place that within the context of eternity, you know that it's going to something that is going to crop up again somewhere in the future. And thus you start a cycle of death and destruction that will never come to an end. Yeah, it's a pretty serious implication when you stop and think about it, isn't it? And think about it from our own perspective. How many of you have two children? Yeah, a bunch of us have children. Let's say that, uh, that uh, when, when you decided to have children, did you have the guarantee that those children would never hurt you? No, we never had that guarantee, did we? Yeah, we still took the risk, didn't we? Because of love. God gave us the power of choice. He didn't have the guarantee that we would never do anything to hurt him, but he took that risk because of love. Now, the first time your children ever hurt you, let's say you've got a few children, three or four children, one of them does something disobedient. You take that children aside, kill it. Is that what you did? No. What would the other, what would the other children think if you did that? <gasps> would they ever love you again? No, of course not. Yes, they'd behave themselves, but not because they loved you. And God does not take obedience from fear. He does not accept obedience that comes from fear. He only accepts obedience that comes from love. Well, let's say that you decided, well, we're going to have children and there's a risk that they will do something wrong to hurt us. And so what we will do is we will eliminate that risk. We will put them in a white, sterile room where they can never experience anything evil. Would those children love you? No, they'd be just prisoners, wouldn't they? Of course they would. We need to think about it seriously sometimes and look at the implications of what we are dealing with. All right, so God does not immediately destroy Satan and wipe him out. He allows Satan to continue for a set period of time. So let's think of the implications of this then, all right? The result of allowing Satan to continue for a limited period of time. Number one, it's going to cause God intense and continual pain because he has to look down on this earth and he has to see what is happening to the creatures that he has created and that he loves. 
intense pain. You think about it. You think about the children that you have and think about them suffering beyond what you can imagine and there is nothing you can do about it without the implications getting completely out of control. It would be horrific. Number two, it requires God to take on himself something that he finds to be truly vile. Because when Jesus came to this earth, he took the one thing that is the worst thing in the universe, and that is sin, evil, on himself. And then it would require the death of his son. So these are some of the results of going down this path. But they're not all of the results. It's not an easy path. The easy path would have been just like, Satan's gone. But that would have created a cycle of death and love would have ceased to exist that very moment. Satan is going to hang himself. We're all familiar with the statement, give a man enough rope and he hangs himself. Isn't that so? And that's exactly what happens right here. Satan hangs himself. You know why? Because the entire universe that is looking on, the Bible says, Paul says, we are a spectacle unto angels, unto men. They're all looking on at this earth. When they see what's happening on this earth, do you think there is anyone out there in the universe who's going to say, well, that actually looks like a good idea. Maybe we'll start that on our planet. Of course not. They're going to recall in horror. There's no way we're going to start that on our planet. We love God. We can see for ourselves what the result of going against God is, and we're going to serve God because we love him. Okay, so God now has the allegiance of the universe, doesn't he? Has he, forced, has he taken away their power of choice? No, he hasn't taken away their power of choice. And watch this. Evil never, ever comes back again. It ceases to exist and the universe is eradicated from evil. It never comes back again, not because it's impossible to come back. It's just that everybody has seen it and they aren't going to bring it back again. I mean, let's face it, we've all faced suffering here on this earth. When we get to heaven, when you get to heaven, you're going to be up in heaven one day and say, you know, I might try sinning again and seeing if that system works. There's no way in a million years. Why? Because we have experienced it. We know that it doesn't work. God does not remove the power of choice. Therefore, love exists forever. It reigns supreme and eternally, and there is eternal harmony in the universe. Don't we have a wonderful God who has a wonderful plan that is all based around that one premise where the Bible says that God is love. Let's go back to our original propositions. We said that God is love. We said that God can't stand evil, that he wants to eradicate it, and that God is all-powerful. Well, if God is love, then he would give us the power to choose. Did he give us the power of choice? Yes, he gave us the power of choice, and that power of choice is sacred, and God will never take it away. Does God detest evil? Absolutely he does. He would not be evil by destroying somebody the moment they did something against him. He would give them time to demonstrate whether it was good or not. Number three, God wants to eradicate evil. He would prove it wrong. 
And by allowing it to continue for a set period of time, which we feel is kind of long, but in the history of the universe, eternity is just a drop in the ocean. God wants to eradicate evil. He would prove it wrong. And if God is all-powerful, he would have a perfect plan whereby evil would be gone forever. It would never come back again. Isn't that good news? You know, when I stop and think about the plan that God has put in place, look at our world today, and I see that it is rapidly coming to a close. This is what I see is about to take place. As we have been looking at night after night, Jesus is about to return. This world has gone on for its set period of time. The universe has seen enough. Don't need to see any more. And no longer will it serve any purpose for the history of our world to continue. And Jesus is going to bring it to an end. He's going to come back. Evil will never exist anywhere again. It will be wiped out entirely. The entire universe will have one pulse of harmony that beats from one end to the other. You know, when I think about that, it reminds me of, uh, you all need to go home and read the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. That's your homework for this evening. It's some of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. The Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse 12, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according as his work shall be. Continues on, uh, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Why? Because Jesus is coming back soon. Now is the time to be ready. Let him that hears, come, respond. Let him that is thirsty, come to Jesus. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Friends, let me ask you a question here this evening. Jesus offers that to every single one of us here. How many of you want to experience it yourselves? You want to have that experience? Praise God. We serve a wonderful God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have a wonderful plan to eradicate evil from our universe forever. A plan that does not take away the power of choice. A plan that does not remove love. But a plan that establishes love as the greatest power in the universe. Father, we pray that every one of us will come to you this evening to receive that plan into our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 2 3456
Jamie George played My Jesus, I Love Thee, and Marsha William, Song of the Lamb. For more information about Marsha Williams' CDs, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.